opened up the news the other day, which is always an encouraging practice. But I found a few articles that jumped out at me. The, number, the, the first one that I found on a, a website that I encourage you to, to check out called the Christian Daily Reporter. Uh, it's a, a great site. pulls together a lot of different articles that uh, are from all the different news providers. But it, it pulls them together from uh, a guy that's really looking to, to compile a, a daily list of things that are significant for us as believers. What do we need to know? Uh, what do we need to be mindful of as we look out there around the world and what's going on? But this, uh, the top of the page had a picture of the Veggie Tales on it. I said, well, that's strange. You don't expect that on a new site. And the article it linked to was about a forum that was held at Cal State San Marcos last week. And this forum was on the problem of whiteness, the privilege of whiteness. And one of the exhibits at this forum had declared that VeggieTales is a racist cartoon. And I know that you've all drawn the same conclusion and we're thinking, well, finally, it's getting the, the press that it needs to get because We've all been there, right? <clears throat> you think about Bob the tomato and Larry Boy the cucumber, and you think, well, clearly this is a racist cartoon. But their argument was that the bad guys have an accent, and the good guys sound like white people, so therefore VeggieTales is racist. We live in a strange world, don't we? And then there's another article that came out uh, maybe a, a week ago about the singer, the female Christian singer, I use the term Christian loosely, who's rising up the, the charts, uh, Lauren Daigle who has been on the Ellen DeGeneres show a couple of times, and she was recently interviewed in an iHeartRadio interview, and they asked her this question, is homosexuality a sin? And that's an easy answer, is it not? And yet Lauren Daigle said this, you know, I can't honestly answer on that. And then she said, as so many people do, I have so many friends that are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender. I can't honestly answer on that. I don't know. I can't say one way or the other, I'm not God. And then she says this, read the Bible and find out for yourself. And if you find out, let me know because I'm learning too. Well, Lauren, Apostle Paul had some things to say. God had some things to say very clearly about this issue. We live uh, in a, an odd world. Then there's the group of Michigan lawmakers, and I think this was the favorite one that I came across, who were arguing that the fast food restaurants in Michigan need to stop offering gender-specific toys. And you think, okay, well, this is going to be one of those we're pressuring children into deciding whether they want to be boys or girls, heaven forbid, right? But that's not the direction the article went. What they were arguing is that they were arguing that the little boys had an unfair advantage over the little girls because these toys that the boys were getting... Now, remember, this is McDonald's. This is the plastic toy that breaks in two seconds when you get it home. The toy that the kid thinks is great when you're in line at McDonald's and then never wants anything to do with the rest of his life. The argument from these lawmakers is that the toys that the boys are playing with are developing spatial intelligence and reasoning that the girls aren't benefiting from, which is then leading down the road to them getting the jobs in the realms of academia and science and technology and engineering and math. And so therefore, we need to stop classifying, well, this Happy Meal is for girls and this Happy Meal is for boys because it's an unfair advantage. I don't know what fast food restaurants are, are in Michigan that are preparing little boys to be rocket scientists and little girls to be better homes and gardens wives. But I, it's, it's absurd, is it not? I mean, there are so many things that we can look at in this world and step back and say, okay, that's absurd. But, but it goes beyond that. It's not just that we live in a strange or odd or absurd world. We live in a world that's, that's at odds with the God that we serve, right? We live in a world that's hostile to the God that we serve. Peter says that we are aliens and strangers in the world in which we live and operate and have our, our being on a daily basis. 
And it's not just that we're strangers and aliens in, in a world that's neutral to us. We're strangers and aliens in a world that is uh, against us and against the God that we serve. And so as believers, as followers of God, we must embrace and we must undertake and own a wartime mentality in this world in which we live. And we're going to look to 2 Samuel chapter 10 together this morning to unpack and to look at and to find out what does that wartime mentality look like for us. As we get into the text, just from a, an overarching view, what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 10 is we find Samuel engaging, in, not Samuel, David, engaging in battle with the Ammonites and the Syrians. We find right off the bat that David sends out an envoy to the king of, of the Ammonites because his father has died and he wishes to show him some loving kindness and some, some, uh, some comfort. His envoy is embarrassed and humiliated and then the Ammonites draw up for battle and they call the Syrians to their aid to be mercenaries to go to battle against Israel. And Joab and Abishai are sent out to evaluate what's going on and then they go to war against them and the the, the Israelites are victorious, but then the Syrians regroup, and then David goes to war, and the, the Israelites defeat the Syrians again, and then uh, that's the end of chapter 10. So that's chapter 10 in a nutshell. But in this chapter, we learn about what it looks like to, to live in a world that's hostile to us as believers, to live with a wartime mentality. But I want to get a little bit of the chronology of what's going on here in 2 Samuel, because I think it's significant for us. If you remember back in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, when the king, when David, lived in his house and when the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. And then you'll remember, if, if you were here with us, the next chapter, chapter 8, lists and records all of David's wars, all of David's battles that he fought that were leading to chapter 7, verse 1. Remember we said chapter 8 probably came before chapter 7. So the, chapter 8 is an explanation of how God gave rest to David from all of his surrounding enemies. Well, as we come to chapter 10, chapter 10 is taking place within the context of chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 3 through 8, David goes up and defeats the Syrians. He defeats Hadad-Ezer, the king of Syria. Well, that was on the heels of what we are reading about here in chapter 10. So chapter 10 through 12 is zooming in closer on what takes place between David's defeat of the Moabites in chapter 8 and his final defeat of Hadadezer in chapter 8, verses 3 through 8. Here's why that matters and why that's somewhat significant. It's not just for the chronology and understanding where we are in Samuel. But something takes place between chapter 10 when, when David goes out against the Ammonites and the Syrians for the first time, and then chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, where he finally defeats the Ammonites and, and does away with his interaction with them. What takes place in chapter 11 in between those two things? David and Bathsheba, right? While the king should have been at war, he was at home in his palace, and we know the rest of the story. We'll get there after the new year. But if all of this is taking place within the context of chapter 8, and if all of chapter 8 took place before chapter 7, verse 1, then that means the Davidic covenant was given and made with David after his sin with Bathsheba. Which points to another just amazing fact about the Davidic covenant, and that is that it wasn't a merit-based covenant for David. A lot of times we think of the Davidic covenant, that's the high point of David's life, and in a lot of ways it was. But it wasn't that God was saying, well, David, you've done such a great job until now. I'm going to covenant with you. And then you've got David and Bathsheba and God's going, whoa, what happened? No, it's on the heels of David and Bathsheba. It's on the heels of the confession and the repentance in Psalm 51 
It's after all that that then God has given David rest from all of his enemies and enters into this great covenant with him. That's the context in which we find what we're about to study in chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. God has not given David rest from all of his enemies yet. He's still doing battle. He's still engaging in these wars. And so we pick up in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and it says, After this, after these things, it was a Hebrew expression that just meant later on, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally. That word loyally is the Hebrew word hesed again. It's the same steadfast love that David now wants to show to Hanun, the son of this Ammonite king who had died, that he had showed to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. So David is, is just, he's ready to pass out steadfast love anywhere and everywhere he can, right? He's ready to show this loyalty. And it says in the text that he wants to do that because his father, the Ammonite king, had shown steadfast love to David. Now, we don't know when that took place. It's not recorded for us, but we can assume that it took place when David was on the run from Saul, when David was fleeing from Saul. And so this king dies, this Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, dies, and David wants to comfort his son, to show extraordinary kindness to his son. And so he sends this envoy to the Ammonites to comfort the the king's son, to comfort Hanun. But then the princes speak up and they say, do you think that David, verse 3, has sent comforters to you to honor your father? Has David not sent his servants to you to search out the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each, which would have been an incredibly embarrassing uh, thing for these men, a shameful thing for these men. And he cuts off their robes at the midway point, exposing themselves to the world around them. And he sends them on their way, and, and David sends a, another uh, group to meet them and tells them, hey, wait until your beards grow back and get yourself some new duds so that when you come home, you're not going to be humiliated. It's an interesting interchange here, and it's one in where David goes and, and he looks to a, a people group who are not the people of God, and he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to relate to them as though they were the people of God. I'm going to try to extend love, loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal love, to this Ammonite people, this pagan people. And the response he gets is a hostile response, isn't it? It's a response that shocks David. But as we consider the the rest of Scripture, and as we consider what we understand to be true, even John chapter 15, in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, Jesus clearly tells us as his followers, the world is going to, what? Hate you. And he goes on and he says, look, they hated me, If they hated me, they're going to hate you because you are my followers. And then we also know from 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world for the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Those things are not of God, but they are from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But the one who does the will of God, what? Abides forever, remains forever. So we know that that there's a a distinction, there's an opposition, there's a hostility between the believer and the world. James 4.4, 4. I tell you the truth, brothers, that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. It's hostility with God to say, I want to be a friend of the world, of the, the system, of the prince, of the power, of the air, according to Ephesians 2. And so as we understand that, as we understand what, what David didn't understand here, David wasn't sinful in what he was doing. He was trying to be loving to somebody who had just lost their father. This isn't a sinful act on, on David. But the, the, the reaction shouldn't have surprised him. This was not the people of God. These were not followers of God. This was a people group that was following after the course of this world. Brothers, as we 
encounter this world, we need to first this morning understand point number one, that we have to expect hostility from this fallen world. Expect hostility from this fallen world. In a lot of ways, we are like Daniel and his three friends. We've been taken from everything that's, that's familiar to us and dropped into the midst of a, a world that's opposed to the God that we love, the God that we serve. If you hope to be a cultural Christian, you're not going to be a very good Christian because this culture is anything but Christian. If you're going to go the ways of the culture, you're going to follow the the ways of these pop singers and others who, when they're asked questions that are black and white in Scripture, have to end up saying, you know what, Uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'm not really to say I'm not God. We live in a society that is unabashedly hostile to us. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. We should understand that. God told us through Jesus, and even in John 17, as Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross, and he's praying for his followers, his disciples, and by extension, he's praying for us. And he says, I I ask that you not take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the power of the evil one. It's that tension that we have to live in as followers of Christ, where we are in the world, but not of the world. And to know what that looks like and to be able to walk in that tension and live in that tension as followers of God in the midst of a hostile, fallen world. What does that mean? How can we practically expect hostility? What should that do for us? Well, first, let's think about this. As we consider where our hope and our confidence is in this life, yes, we should do our part as citizens of the country that we live in and be grateful for the citizenship that we have. However, We can't put our hope or our confidence in politics or the goodness of man. It's going to leave us wanting. Theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, abolish religion if you like. Throw everything on secular government if you like. But do not be surprised if a machinery that was never meant to do anything but secure external decency and order fails to secure internal honesty and peace. We can't put our hope where God never intended us to put our hope. In fact, yes, again, let's be thankful for the blessing of living in the country that we live in, but I think it's an important balance for us to remember that on the day of Armageddon, on the final day, do you know where this country and all of its military forces are going to be lined up? Against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's important to remember that our hope can't be here in this world or in the politics or the goodness of man. Second, we can't be surprised when we open up the news. I mean, I made that joke this, or, as we began that you open up the news and it's not exactly the most encouraging thing. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. This world is not on a, a track towards getting better. It's on a track towards getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And now with the invention of social media and the invention of cell phone cameras, the depravity of man is just on display more than it ever has been before. And I don't think that's going to change. And so when you open up the news or the websites or whatever, and you just see headline after headline after headline pointing to the fallenness of this world, let's not be surprised at that. We need to understand that, yes, this world is is a hostile place for the believer. This world is a, a place that celebrates and glorifies depravity and sin. But that being said, third, we need to rejoice when we do see a lost sinner repent and put their faith in Christ. That truly is an an act of God because this world is hostile to the Lord and hostile to his system and hostile to the gospel. So when you see a believer repent from their sin and put their faith in God, that is an act of God opening their eyes and running against the forces of what this world does. This world is not going to naturally produce a Christian. 
That's an act of God. That is a, a God thing and a God thing alone when that happens. And so when we see that, we need to rejoice in that. But man, we are truly Bunyan's pilgrims. We are on the straight and narrow path. We are walking towards the king's palace, but along the way, we are walking through the world of the wicked prince. The snares are laid, the the vanity fair and everything else that comes with it is all around us. And we're fooling ourselves to think that this world is going to get better or that this world is going to be a, a safe place to incubate our faith in Christ. We have to have that wartime mentality because we live in a hostile world. So David's offer of peace and love and comfort is rebuffed by the Ammonites. And so uh, David hears of this. And then the Ammonites says in verse 6, says, they see that they had become a stench to David. That's never a good thing, is it? To become a stench. Men, you don't want your wives to say, you know what? You've got a certain stench about you. That's just unique. They may think that, but you don't want to hear that, right? And in fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, it says that the Israelites had become a stench to the Philistines. And in 2 Samuel chapter 16, David's son will become a stench to him because he's going to sleep with his father's concubines. To become a stench to somebody is not a good thing. So the Ammonites realize, okay, we made a mistake. This wasn't a good move. And, and certainly they know what's going on with David and with Israel, that David and Israel had been leading all of these military campaigns and experiencing all of these victories. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I think the princes counsel Hanun to say, look, they're just here to spy out the land because we're their next victim. Well, they realize they'd become a stench and they reach out to the Syrians and they enlist the Syrians as mercenaries to come to their aid, which wasn't anything that was abnormal during this time. But it says in the text, uh, they hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. It works out to, to 33,000 mercenaries that the king of, of Ammon, the Ammonites hires to come and fight Israel with them. So they draw up for battle. Well, David sends out Joab, sends out his most trusted military commander, and Joab goes out with his brother Abishai to see what's going on and to take an assessment of what Israel was up against. And when they come there, we find in verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, things are not looking good for Israel at this point. He realizes that with the the presence of the Syrians and then with the presence of the Ammonites, that that they're up against it, that Israel is going to have to fight two battles and not just one battle. And so Joab speaks to his brother Abishai, And he says he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of his men he put in the charge of, of Abishai, his brother. And he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall come and help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So what we have here is we have Israel's military commanders, Joab and Abishai, coming together and they're strategizing. They're using their wisdom and their experience. As we'll see in a moment here, certainly they trust the sovereignty of God. They trust the outcome to the Lord. But they're not just sitting back passively going, well, God's going to take care of this. No, they're employing the, the, the gifts that the Lord had given them. They're doing the work that they need to do to get ready for the battle that they're about to fight. As we encounter a hostile world ourselves, a world that hates us, a world that's under the influence of our great adversary, we need to do the same thing. It's point number two this morning. We need to employ wisdom in engaging the opposition employ wisdom in engaging the opposition. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is getting ready to send out his disciples with the message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as he sends them out, he says, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So therefore, be wise as serpents. There's a wisdom that we should have as we engage in a hostile world. We shouldn't be the victim that rolls over and plays dead anytime that we come up against the systems and the forces at work in this world. We need to be on the offensive. We need to be wise as serpents. And then we come to a passage like Ephesians chapter 6, right? Ephesians chapter 6, which we know contains the, the text that describes the armor of God for us. And Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. How are we strong in the Lord? How are we strong in the strength of God's might? We put on the armor of God. We actively engage in these things that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As you think through the armor of God, which hopefully we're all familiar with to some extent or another, there's so many defensive elements to the armor of God, right? There's the shield to extinguish the flaming darts in the enemy. There's the breastplate of righteousness. There's the helmet of salvation. All those things are meant to protect us and keep us safe. But there's a couple of offensive elements to the armor of God, right? The first one is the one that we consider to be the what? The sword of the spirit. A, a soldier's not going to go into battle without the sword, without God's word. That's the, the chief offensive weapon that we have. But the other offensive, the other active part of the armor of God is the feet, the, the, the shoes that we put on our feet. They're the readiness of the what? The gospel. The gospel is something that we're supposed to take with us, that we're supposed to advance, not retreat. The gospel, we don't raise the gospel on a white flag to the world and say, hey, we're surrendering. But by the way, we think this would be really great for you to, to think about. No, we're to advance with the gospel. We're to, to move forward with the gospel. And so as we think about encountering the opposition in this world is going to oppose us. We need to be active in that. We need to use the wisdom that God has given us. We need to use the, the gifts that the Lord has given us. Just like Joab and Abishai used their wisdom and their experience to strategize about how they were going to do battle in a situation that didn't look good for Israel. You and I need to also use the wisdom that God has given us to make sure that we are preparing adequately to engage the opposition. How do we do that? Well, number one, it, it takes discipline. It takes discipline on our part to make sure that we are, are actively doing the things that I'm about to list off here. But if you don't have discipline, you're not going to be ready. Discipline in a, a few different areas here. Number one, in, in prayer. That's going to be key for us as we engage the opposition. We need to be making sure that we have communication, so to speak, with the, the front lines, with, the, with our, our, our key support there through our communication with the, the Lord through prayer. Talk about that more in our third point. But second, we need to have discipline in, in the word in equipping ourselves with the sword of the Spirit. As Jesus encountered the opposition in the wilderness, right, from Satan, the temptation that he encountered, how did he respond three times? With God's word. We need to be men who are equipped, who are armed with the word of God. That goes further than just doing the daily Bible reading and checking that off. That means memorizing God's word. That means internalizing it. That means meditating on the word of God. That means being the, the cow, right? You think, well, that's an odd thing to say. But the cow has multiple stomachs. Why? So that every single part of the day, he's continually regurgitating. This is a pleasant thought, right? It's regurgitating the cud, chewing the cud. That needs to be us with God's word. We need to be daily bringing it back up on the hour, every hour, thinking about what we've read that morning, what we've meditated on, what we've, we've memorized. That's how we're going to be armed and adequately prepared to engage in the opposition that this world is going to bring at us. Also, we need to be disciplined in 
being, having a good filter installed in our lives? What are we taking in? What's shaping us? What's forming us? What is entering into our hearts? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That needs to be our trajectory, gentlemen, with what we take in, with what we are engaging in. Then we need to be disciplined to have others fighting on our right side and our left side alongside of us. I don't know what you think about Clayton Kershaw right now. He's a great regular season pitcher at least, right? So he's got that going for him. He just re-signed with the Dodgers. I'll, I'll tell you, I was hope, hopeful he would come and, and pitch for the Rangers, his hometown team. But alas, he wanted to be in the playoffs, and so I understand. But here's how Clayton Kershaw prepares for the opposition. Every single game that he pitches. Five hours before the first pitch, he's in the tunnel. And what he's doing in the tunnel is he's going through a slow-motion form of his wind-up and delivery and his mechanics with every single one of his pitches. And he's throwing a, a ball softly against the wall in the tunnel so that he's getting down and rehearsing the mechanics of what he's going to do when he gets onto the mound. Four hours before the first pitch, he then goes into the, the, the uh, locker room to be with his teammates. And his teammates say he doesn't say anything, he doesn't engage with anyone, and, and the rest of his teammates know not to go up and talk with Clayton, but he wants to be with his teammates. He wants to be in the room, and he sits there quietly and just kind of takes everything in before the game. And then three hours before the first pitch, he goes into the trainer's room, and he goes into the trainer's room not to get taped up or anything else, but he lays down and he takes a nap. He rests before he has to go out and exert himself fully uh, before in the, in the nine innings, hopefully, that he'll pitch if he's on his game that day, right? Three hours before the first pitch, he does that. 75 minutes before the first pitch, Kershaw meets with his catcher and pitching coach to talk strategy for the opposing team's hitters. Who is this guy? Where's his hot zone? Where's his cold zone? What pitch does he hit really well? What pitch does he not hit well? So that every guy that comes up there, he understands who that guy is and what he needs to do and how he needs to attack him when he comes up to bat. 30 minutes before the first pitch, Kershaw long tosses across the outfield before heading to the bullpen to throw the same 34-pitch sequence he uses during bullpen sessions between his starts. Here's that 34-pitch sequence that he does every time. Three fastballs with the catcher standing. Then three fastballs middle of the plate. Three fastballs either side of the plate. Three change-ups away. One fastball inside. Three curveballs middle. One fastball inside. Three sliders middle. Then he changes to the stretch position. Two fastballs inside, two fastballs away, two change-ups, one fastball inside, two curveballs, one fastball inside, two sliders, and then back to the windup for one fastball inside and one fastball away. And then eight minutes on the dot before the first pitch, Kershaw walks in from center field with his catcher at his side to get ready to start the game. That's his routine every single time. That's how he prepares to engage the opposition. He has it down. He's not going to change that because it's been effective, at least in the regular season, for him in engaging the opposition and defeating the opponents. Man, we need to have that routine as well. We need to have a, a pregame routine, so to speak, every single day, every single morning that we have in, in, in stone for us. That we know this is how I'm going to prepare for the opposition that I'm going to face today. Because the reality is you and I are going to find ourselves facing opposition every single day. The enemy is not going to take a day off. Kershaw has some off days, right? He doesn't pitch every single day. You and I have to be on our game every single day. So we need to have 
a, a, a pregame routine, so to speak. We need to employ our wisdom in engaging the opposition every day. And a big part of that is preparing every day to make sure that we are armored up and ready to go to battle against the forces of this world, against the spiritual forces at work in this present age. Like I said, Joab and Abishai, though, they, they trusted the Lord in this. Look at verse 12. This may be one of my favorite verses of all of 2 Samuel. Joab says to Abishai's brother, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. It's an amazing statement. Again, up against it, not knowing what the outcome would be. Joab doesn't name it and claim it. He doesn't step back and say, in the name of Jesus, I claim the Arameans and the Ammonites, and we are going to have this victory, uh, whatever, sprinkle the holy water, do a funny dance. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even say, may the Lord do what seems good to us or to me. Which if I'm in that situation, I'm Joab, I'm thinking, okay, God, it would be great if you gave us a victory. It'd be great if, you know, if, if we could have not too many people die in this battle. It'd be great if Abishai, my brother, could stay alive during this battle. And yeah, it'd be great too if, if you could win the battle for your name because then others would fear your name even more. That would be good to me. But that's not what Joab says. He says, may the Lord do what's good to him. That's hard for us. It's hard for us to subjugate our idea of what's good to the Lord's idea of what's good. It's point number three for us this morning. It's this. Entrust your well-being to a good God. As you encounter a hostile world and engage the opposition of this hostile world, we have to entrust our well-being to a good God. Again, we know, we know the rest of the story, so we know that things work out well for Israel. But again, when Joab and Abishai are saying these things, they're splitting their forces. And in battle, you don't really want to have to split your forces you don't want to fight on two fronts. That's not normally going to go well for you. But that's exactly what Israel is faced with because they've got the Syrians on one side and the Ammonites on the other side. And facing that, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, Joab says, may the Lord do what seems good to him. And that needs to be our mindset on a regular basis as well. I mean, we just read this morning in the daily Bible reading of Daniel and the lion's den. I love that it says in the text very specifically and that it's recorded for us that it says when Daniel knew that the decree had been signed by Darius, when he knew that this was going to cost him his life potentially, he went up and just as he had done before, and that's a great line as well. This isn't show. This isn't unnecessary bravado. It's, it's David pursuing the relationship with the Lord that he knows he should pursue because it's the thing that he's always done. He kneels down and he prays to Jerusalem with the windows open. And sure enough, the people that were lying in wait, expecting him to do that, find him. They go to Darius and Darius says, I, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this because it's the law of my people. And he throws Daniel in the lion's den. Does Daniel know how the lions are going to react as the stone is being removed from the, the mouth of the cave? No, he doesn't. Does Daniel understand what's going to happen to him when he kneels down and he prays to the Lord in his, in his room before the, he's arrested? Yes, he does. And yet, what does he do? He continues to entrust himself to a good God. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in chapter 3. In fact, there it's put even more specifically for us because they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar and they look at the, the king Nebuchadnezzar who says, hey, I'm going to give you one more chance when all of this awful music plays at the same time 
I want you to fall down and worship this golden image that we've set up. And they say, King, we don't need to answer you. But hey, we're going to anyways, because you need to know this. The God whom we serve is able to deliver us from that blazing, fiery furnace. He can if he so wills. But he will deliver us, O king, from your hand. Even if he kills us in that furnace, he's still going to be delivering us from you, Nebuchadnezzar. That's entrusting yourself to a good God. Understanding that the outcome may not be what you want it to be on this side of eternity, but God is still good. That the, the suffering and, and the, the pain that we experience on this side of eternity is preparing for us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that we can say, okay, God, yes, you are still good. This didn't line up with the way that I wanted things to work out, but yet you are still good and I'm going to trust and I'm going to hold on to that understanding that you are good. When the Lord called Pastor Wes home. He wasn't being a, a cruel God to Laurie and the kids. He's a good God still. In that moment was a good God. And even now as you watch Laurie grieve, she is continually entrusting herself to that good God. How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, I want to zoom in again on this idea of, of prayer more specifically. As you're up against the opposition from the world, whatever that's going to look like in your life, uh, first, pray for the good that you desire. It's not a bad thing to desire a good outcome according to what you, your, your definition of good may be. That's not wrong. In fact, the Bible says you don't have because you don't ask. And so pray, ask for the Lord to to do what you think is good in this instance, in, in that circumstance. I don't know because it's not recorded for us specifically in the scriptures here, but I imagine that Joab was praying to himself, okay, God, again, it'd be great if we won. It'd be great if there weren't too many casualties here. It'd be great if my brother could live and it'd be great for your name to go forth. I'm sure those thoughts were going through Joab's mind. It's not a, a bad thing for us to pray for the good that we desire in this life, as long as that's not going to lead us into sin or glorify sin or be anything that's against what we know to be God's will. But second, pray for your desires to be aligned with God's. So yes, pray for the good that you desire, but then also pray that God would align your desires with his desires. Third, pray for God's will to be done regardless. Even if, God, even if you don't align my desires with your desires, the thing I want more than anything else is for your will to be done. And then finally, pray for confidence in the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that he is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Pray for confidence in the truth of Romans 8, 28 and 29, that says that God is working all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that purpose that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So God is working all things together for our good, that we should be conformed to the image of his son. Pray for confidence in those texts. This idea of entrusting yourself to a good God, your well-being to a good God, it, it's not passive fatalism that we're talking about here. 
Again, Job and Abishai said, may the Lord do what seems good to him. But they're saying that in the context of having prepared well for the battle. And then they go out and what do they do? They actually fight the battle. And they fight the battle knowing, yes, God is sovereign, but they know that God is sovereignly going to use them, use their gifts, their abilities, their strengths, their power, their wisdom, their strategy to accomplish his will. And so they go out and they, they engage in the battle and they defeat the Syrians and the, the Ammonites. They both run for their lives. And then the Syrians come back again against David and David draws up this time and David defeats them once again. And then they, they run home and Hadadezer, uh, thinking the third time's the charm back in chapter eight, right? They draw up once again and come after Israel until finally they're once and for all defeated by David. And so this isn't passive fatalism. What it is to think about, okay, this world that we live in is hostile. I need to use wisdom in engaging the opposition and I need to entrust the outcome, entrust my well-being to a good God. It's freeing for us. It's motivating for us. It takes the burden of securing the outcome off of us. It allows us to say, okay, Lord, I know what your game plan is for me and I'm gonna do it and trust that you're gonna work all things according to your good and perfect will. And so what do I need to do today? What am I being called to do today? I'm called to be obedient to you today. How can I do that in, in the realms that I'm going to be in, involved in today? Yes, I'm going to meet opposition. But ultimately, the outcome is in your hands. And I can trust that. I can trust that and be obedient, be faithful to you. This world is, is not hospitable to us as believers. So we need to understand that we should expect hostility. We should expect the world not just to rebuff our offers, but to look to humiliate us and embarrass us and eventually maybe imprison us even here. And certainly it's already happening in other parts of the world and it may eventually happen here as well to, to kill us for our faith. That's the world in which we live. That's the world that we find ourselves in. That's the world in which God has left us and not taken us out of, but promise that he will protect us from the evil one. So we should expect hostility. But with that in mind, we should also wake up not with blinders on every morning thinking, okay, this is just going to be roses and dandelions for us all day. We need to, to employ the wisdom that God has given us, understanding that we are going to engage with the opposition of the, the spiritual forces at work in this present age every single day. And so we need to prepare every single day for that. We need to have our pregame routine in place. And make sure that we are ready and well-equipped with the armor of God on, with the sword of the Spirit at the ready, with the shoes of the gospel ready to advance. And then finally, we need to entrust the outcome of all these things, the well-being, our well-being, our personal well-being, our spiritual well-being, our physical well-being, the well-being of our families to a good God. As we conclude here this morning, there's a hope that we have more clearly defined for us than Joab and Abishai or David had defined for them. And that is that we have the hope of a world that we are ultimately going to be dwelling in, inhabiting, in which it's not going to be hostile to us. It's not going to be hostile to our God. It's not going to be a situation where we are having to wake up expecting hostility, preparing for opposition, and entrusting the outcome to a good God. We are going to be in the very presence of the good God that we are trusting in the meantime. And here's going to be the results. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth, that hostile earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the opposition, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, when Joab said, may the Lord do what seems good to him, he may have had this understanding that ultimate deliverance would come through life or death. You and I certainly have that understanding. And so we can say, may the Lord do what seems good to him, knowing that Ultimately, this is the good that's secure. This is the good that's coming for all of us who claim Christ. This is the hope that we can come so that we can echo with John at the end of the book of Revelation after hearing Jesus say, surely I am coming soon. We can all say with him, amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this text from 2 Samuel chapter 10 and the way that you show the, the relationship between Understanding that we live in a world that, that hates you, that hates us because we are yours. Understanding how we should operate and engage with that world and understanding that ultimately you are the God who is sovereign, that you are going to orchestrate and, and, and decree all things to be put together and worked out for good. Good not according to our definition, but good according to your definition. You are the ultimate standard, the definer of what is good. So, Lord, help us to trust you in that. Lord, I pray for my brothers in this room that are walking through trials that are hurting right now, that you would comfort them, that you would show yourself to be good to them. God, I pray that you would lead them out of the valley, lead them out of the trial that they're going through, out of the grief that they're experiencing. Lord, that they would have a great hope in what's coming in Revelation 21. And that we would all together be able to say, Okay, whatever this day has in store for us, even today, Lord, may the Lord do what seems good to him. Lord, give us such faith to be able to do that. I pray, I ask, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen.